Hey there, and welcome back to the Earn Your Edge podcast. I'm Corey Lumberg from Altus Performance, and this week we have an incredibly timely episode featuring winner of last week's PGA Tour event, Bryson DeChambeau. We are very excited at how the timing of that worked out, but before we get to it, just a quick call to action to you listeners. We've got a bunch of really good guests lined up in the coming weeks, Butch Harmon, Chris Solomon from No Laying Up, Eric Anders Lang, among others. And we're also going to be doing a mailbag episode where we answer some of your questions. And we tried this by asking for some of your questions on Instagram in advance to interviewing Bryson. And the questions that we got were, they, they blew us away. They were outstanding, really thoughtful and insightful. So we thought, why not just have a full episode of that? So go to Instagram and direct message us some questions. Also, we've got a bunch of new videos that we've posted there, including some longer form videos on that we put on IGTV and YouTube. So check those out if you haven't already. But back to Bryson here. Cam and I had the opportunity to sit down with Bryson just a few days before the event when he was number seven in the world. And now here just a few days later, he's won yet another PGA Tour event and has jumped up to, he's now the fifth ranked player in the world. And obviously, it's exciting to get a chance to discuss all the unique and possibly esoteric ways that Bryson has found to earn his edge. So he's an ideal guest for us. Sit back and enjoy what ended up being a fascinating chat with one of the most interesting guys in golf, Bryson DeChambeau. Hey there, it's Corey Lumberg from Altus Performance, and this is the Earn Your Edge podcast. And this week, we are joined by a guest that we have had on our list for a long time, as it's been our mission to uncover all the unique ways that that the highest performers have found to separate themselves from their peers. And no one has been more creative with experimenting and thinking outside the box in order to gain an edge. So we're very pumped to unpack a few of those separators with Bryson DeChambeau. Bryson, thanks very much for joining us, man. Thanks, Corey. Yeah, appreciate being on. So I guess just to set the stage, I know that most uh, of our listeners are going to be very familiar with you and your story, but I, I think that it sets the stage for us to have a conversation on kind of what those differentiators are for you. Just give us the quick version of your early involvement in golf, just kind of starting out, and then we can go from there. Yeah, you know, my dad was a professional back in the day, and when uh, my parents had me, my dad turned back to being an amateur. He got his amateur status back and. Uh, wanted to teach me the game. He felt like he had too many things, you know, not go right for him in his prime. And so he wanted to give me the opportunities to uh, do my absolute best and whatever it was. It didn't have to be golf, but he always gave me the opportunity to pick what I wanted to do growing up, playing whether it was playing soccer, baseball, volleyball, cross country, anything uh, athletic, he always encouraged. And around the age of 10, I just picked golf. I mean, it was, it was just a simple decision for me. And I really loved the game, loved nature, loved outdoors. And it was just a beautiful uh, game to play. And that's really what caught my eye. It wasn't really anything more than it was just fun to play back in the day. Still played soccer during that time, still played volleyball and a little bit of basketball. Even my senior year in high school, I played volleyball on the the varsity team in high school. And so my uh, golf coach, Josh Gregory at SMU, when I went in there, I told him about it, but I never told him about it uh, my whole senior year. So I <laughs> didn't want to freak him out <laughs> thinking I'd get, in, get an injury. So that was kind of funny. But I was always really athletic growing up. And my parents uh, did everything possible to allow me the opportunity to play uh, the game I love and then uh, do anything else I wanted to do. So I had a really good base uh, support system and I uh, had a drive. I developed a drive, this insane drive, uh, when I was around 12 or 13 
I wanted to swing just like Hogan, Ben Hogan. And that was a big, big thing for me. I wanted to be one of the best ball strikers in the world. And I said, how do I become the best ball striker in the world? And obviously my coach, Mike Shy, I talked to him about it a bunch. And we said, all right, well, we're going to have to learn the ins and outs of the golf swing. If we really want to want to unpack the secrets of golf and figure out how to make it repeatable consistently. So, you know, it's taken a long time, but I finally got to the point where I think I understand enough buckets to where I can quantify it now. And it's not it's not too very ballistic to where I can repeat these things uh, on a consistent basis. But initially it was the golfing machine. Mike gave me the book at 15 and I started reading this yellow book that that's freaking crazy information and, and that I had no idea what, what it was. And it was, you know, a little bit of physics at the time and then mainly just positioning alignments of the body. And that's really, that's really all it was. Uh, and I didn't realize it though. I had no understanding of biomechanics. I had no understanding in physics. And so it was this unique book that uh, definitely taught me a lot initially. Uh, that gave me a love for physics. Ultimately, that's what I studied in, in uh, college with a math minor and uh, economics minor as well. And unfortunately, so well, but fortunately, I, I didn't finish school. <laughs> it, it worked out all right. Um, you know, but it, it's something definitely that I would love to, to go back and finish one day if I get the chance. It's just it's just I have to finish two labs and those labs are pretty extensive and it takes quite a bit of time to accomplish those those feats. Um, it's not like just taking an online class. You can't just <laughs> go yeah, you got, online and you take got a few labs. things that are keeping you from that right now, which is understandable. Yeah. So yeah, go, going back to just you as a junior golfer, obviously uh, you being immersed in golf machine would be one way yeah. that would have distinguished you from every other junior golfer in the country. Right. Any other things that you kind of notice early on from your peers that you kind of, whether it's you're holding a trophy and you're looking around and saying, well, I, I'm a little bit different than, than my peers in this way, kind of early well, on kind of what you felt those were. I'll tell you, I was not the best junior golfer growing up until I got to around 16, where, where I really felt like, okay, I'm one of the top junior golfers. Probably my last year in, in, in high school, I always felt like I was behind. You know, I watched Jordan win his uh, junior, uh, junior amateurs, and, and it was always like, dang, I just feel like I'm behind the eight ball. I never felt like, you know, I got into the U.S. Junior Ams late, uh, like 15 or 16, where other kids were qualifying early. So, uh, you know, even in, in – uh, even in uh, my regional junior golf association, you know, junior golf, uh, JJNC and NCGA junior tour, I always felt like I was behind. You know, I never felt ever felt like I was the top dog. And so that always pushed me. That always made me feel like I need to work harder so I can get better and become this, this, this person that I want to be, you know, and always made me work hard. You know, I, yes, I would win events. I would win events here and there and, and smaller events, but I never won anything really big. The only the biggest junior golf event I won was the California State Junior, which is a pretty big event, but it's not like it was Junior World or or um, what is that? I think it was the, the Orange Bowl or, or I forget in Florida. Bunch of great events, you know, PGA Junior. Never did anything like that. Never even competed in the PGA Junior, you know. And so you don't necessarily have to be the best growing up to become one of the best players in the world. And that's one of the biggest things that that I hope people can realize is that I came from somebody that was a good golfer, but not, not great. And, and so that's where I, I hope for, for me and, and telling my message is that, you know, you can become great at any point in time you want. It's about literally your determination 
your resilience and resolve. Yeah. So one of the things that we pick up from these conversations that is common in the highest performers is this level of self-belief, this level of confidence. And typically that's coming from these early successes. If we were going to kind of trace back the origin of where does this come from? So you also strike me as someone who has a lot of conviction, a lot of certainty, a lot of self-assurance and kind of who you are and, and, and your abilities. But it doesn't sound like it came from the traditional means of a lot of early success. So, so where does that kind of self-belief and that conviction come from then? Well, you know, what's funny about that is that through failure, it actually gave me belief. So that's the interesting part about it. You can have two opposite ends of the spectrum and you can have two different reactions from, from these, you know, so if you have great success, let's say there is a potential for a kid to say, I'm the best. I'm going to keep doing this because I know I'm the best. There's also the potential. And I've, I saw plenty growing up. There's also the potential for someone to, to just burn out because they're like, I don't, I'm, I'm the best. I don't need to work hard at it. It's, it's, it's just too easy for me. It's fine. Whatever. There is that side of it. I've seen plenty of kids do it at, at, at a young age, especially when I was surpassing them. I started passing them. You could just see it. Like they didn't work hard. They didn't, after they had a bad round or even a good round, they wouldn't go out and practice after. And, and so that's really what struck me. I'm like, man, and this, this is the quote that always resonated with me. Uh, Hogan said it, and it's something to this, this, uh, uh, this liking here. It, it's, Every day that you don't practice is a day that someone else is getting better than you. And that really stuck with me. No matter if it was failure, no matter if it was success, it was a baseline for me that always made me work my absolute hardest. And I knew that that was what was going to push me past everyone eventually. But I had to have good information. That was the next step. You know, you you can't just work hard. You have to have good understanding, good knowledge, and a good baseline to move forward from. You know, you never want to go down a rabbit hole that you're not that you're not secured to a rope to. You know, you got to be able to go down a hole and then pull yourself back out and go, okay, I need to go down something else. That didn't work. I got bit or whatever, you know. And and so that's something that for me has always pushed me in the right direction, knowing that I have a good base, knowing that I've got a lot of great information and I've got a great work ethic. And those were the things that really pushed me past uh, everyone as, as time went on. This podcast and the many that follow are proudly brought to you by our partner, Titleist, the number one ball in golf. Now, as it relates to earning an edge, our friends at Titleist have been the leaders since the early 1900s. And in order to compete and win at the highest level, frankly, there's no room for second best. For this reason, the best players in the world trust Titleist. The players that we talk to, they all have these kind of traits, these high caliber characteristics that we kind of talk to. And as you've made this transition from successful college player and am player, you know, being, you know, joining the list of Jack Nicholas and Tiger Woods and Phil Mickelson of winning the USAM and the NCAA, and then moving on to seeing a lot of success early on in your professional, not that it wasn't without its difficult times, but, but you've got, you've clearly, we've got four wins with uh, two wins in the playoffs and currently number seven in the world. What yeah. characteristics do you feel like have separated that top 1% of 1%? Because now you're in that. You're in that 1% of 1%. And so you've been able to add on successfully. You, you know, I guess my, my kind of narrow that question down would be, what have you learned in the last 365 days that has allowed for that climb? What have you added to your toolbox? Well, I can tell you that when I came out on tour, uh, I thought I was going to be, you know, a, a, a superstar. I thought that I was going to be someone that was – going to be a world beater initially. 
and yeah, I came out with them at the masters in 2016 and played great. Unfortunately, uh, after the RBC heritage and finishing fourth, I thought that it was super easy out there and I struggled massively for the next year, year and a half even. And it was because I knew about halfway through that struggle that I was not good enough. Even though I had won, I had been on an insane rhythm run and had incredible rhythm and had incredible timing. You know, my only two wins, I'd say 2015, were the NCAA and the U.S. Amateur. It wasn't any other smaller amateur event at all. I played bad in most of them. And so I had this incredible timing aspect to it that allowed me to win these two events. You know, and, and when my timing was on, I was a high caliber player, but I couldn't repeat it. And I started to realize that over time. I'm like, man, I've got so much rhythm in my game that I can't repeat this on demand. I've got so much closure rate right before impact that it's very difficult to repeat motion. You know, I'm going through this full supination to pronation in the, in the right and, and left forearm right before impact. And it's like, all right, well, there's only one spot that it's going to be square. And I was like, that has to be perfect timing for me to hit exact shots that I exactly want to do every single time. It's nearly impossible to keep it consistent. And I think that's where the, the change started to occur. I'll say about a year ago and a little bit. So right after last year's playoffs, after I missed the tour championship, I looked at myself and I looked at Mike. I said, I got to change something because, yeah, I can win with it. I can play well, but shoot, I'm not going to be able to do it consistently because I went and played the John Deere, won the John Deere. Next week, I went and missed the cut by seven. And it's like, that's not what a top 10 player does ever. How can I change that? How can I change the dynamics of going from a rhythm player to more of an alignment player, something to where I can lock things down and allow it to just repeat without me even thinking about it, not even thinking. And so that was really the goal is how do I keep the faces initially? How do I keep the face as square as possible through impact? You know, and, and going through that process, I started to understand some biomechanics. I started to understand, and I'm not going to give you too much because this is my edge. Well, but, we can run that around <laughs> at all. That's okay. <laughs> I, I will explain a little bit that it came down to biomechanics and how I aligned them. So one quick example is I would take my left arm and go full internal rotation with the whole left arm. And then I would go the lower aspect, the full internal, and then I'd go lower aspect at that end range. And so I locked this left arm down. There was this biomechanical lock to it that I had. And from that premise, from this premise of, of knowing that, okay, I'm locked, I'm literally locked down and I can't have create any more rotation unless the glenohumeral joint fails. And I have, I've got scapular depression and a little bit of um, external upper arm rotation. If that failed in competition, that would make news. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Do yourself a pretty severe uh, injury so, to continue. Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah. So, I mean, if, if that was to happen, then it would create a face alignment that was left. And so I started to relate the body, every single mo body mo motion, everything that I did, whether it was wrist flexion, wrist extension, ulnar deviation, radial devi deviation, I related it all to how the club face and club head move. It's mechanical. It's a Newtonian mechanics system. It's not like it's some quantum mechanics. It's insanely complicated that we can't figure out. Yeah. Let me just, can I explore that just real quick, just to refine it for the listeners so we don't get confused in terms of our terminology. Yeah. When you're talking about as square as possible, you're talking about a square to the path, the dynamic movement of the club head versus square to the target line, correct? Yeah, exactly. Trying to retain face square to the path as much as possible and then deviate the path and maybe deviate the face a little bit. But 
for the most part, I'm just trying, uh, initially, I was trying to keep it as square as possible for as long as possible and seeing how my body could move under these restrictions, you know, under its own restrictions, you know, because your body has internal restrictions. World-class players, being as adaptive as they are, plastic, malleable, like Jordan calls it wet concrete, and I like that terminology that we can shape, or wet clay like we can shape. Mm-hmm. Describe the timeline of this process of improvement. You, you described coming off the Masters, I think 2015, then your next win yep. was DAP Championship on the web, Web.com Finals that yep. allowed you to get your card. But throughout that period of time, you recognized deficiencies. At what point did you begin this let's say, improvement process and how long did it take you being one of the best players in the world to make this change and therefore kind of shines a lot of realism to the developing players out there? Yeah, so I would say when I changed for the better, when I changed for the better, it was right at right after the uh, Tour Championship last year or the week of the Tour Championship, I started to unlock some of these secrets that allowed me to get to this next level of consistency. It wasn't that I couldn't play at a high level. It was that I needed to be able to retain my competitive edge at that high level. You know, there there are things that that I struggled with. You know, yeah, I was a great player at times, but consistency was a was a, a tough point because of rhythm. Everybody talks about rhythm and and you know you need great rhythm and everything. Well, I'll tell you that in my golf game right now, I need less rhythm than most people. And I'll say, too, that most of the great players out there right now, the great ball strikers out there, are not rhythm dependent. They can get up there and just swing it as hard or as soft as they want. And these alignments that they have in the body allow them to retain uh, consistent ball flight trajectories. And there is some part of rhythm that you're always going to have, but it's about limiting the amount of uh, rhythm that makes you have this internal air. Can you speak a little bit to kind of where we've got this construction of form or to where you were finding some form elements and the way that you're talking about it and, and really your your level of knowledge with it is far beyond what most sports scientists would would encourage uh, an athlete to have that kind of declarative knowledge of right. what they're doing. And so right. I'm curious just like how you're able to balance this explicit knowledge of form that you have with actual performance i'm just curious how much of it are you thinking on the golf course in performance or you know in a performance mode and performance environment and how much of it then becomes like maybe rhythm based or i've heard you say now i turn into an artist when i get on the golf course so speak to that balance a little bit so i'll tell you that and i've been asked this many times like man are, are you too technical are you is there too much going in your brain and i'll tell you right now that my best statement to them is always you're too technical if you don't understand the subject. So if you understood the subject, it wouldn't create a neurological issue in your brain. So, so if, if, okay, so for example, if I get overshot and I'm thinking of something technical and it's in a static position, right? And I'm thinking about, I'm going, okay, this is what's going to create this club based alignment, blah, blah, blah. I'll get over it. And then, or once it theoretically makes sense, once it goes into my brain and says, this makes sense in uh, creating a more stable space or whatever I'm trying to create at that point in time, then it clicks and I'm done with it. And I focus on it. And, but it's like that one swing thought that you have. that's like, Oh, that, that's what makes me hit it. Good. That's exactly what it goes back to, but it has to make sense theoretically and prove experimentally over time that it works before I can, go forward with it. If you give a kid information 
And they're like, man, I just can't get it. I can't get it. This is just not working. Well, it's probably not right relative to their muscle build, structure build, and how they like to produce force, how they like to align the club face. So I, I think if we can correctly synthesize that down, you start at a theoretical level, then you apply through active practice this yep. well-educated trial and error process of auditioning fields, if you will, yeah, synthesizing absolutely. it down to a simple field that then allows you to play with um, with whatever it is that aspect you're trying to integrate into your movement pattern, correct? Right. So when I hit a golf shot, I'm not thinking about any external stimuli. The only input I have is from the lie, how I've previously assessed the shot. So, so I'll go back. I'll start with how I assess the shot and exactly what shot I need. All right. So when I see a shot, I'm, I, I go, okay, this is what I need to have the best statistical advantage that I can possibly have. Now I move back and look, okay, what lie do I have? So now how do I uh, make that shot happen? What things do I need to do in my body to make it happen? So it's like I'm building the machine piece by piece. And so once I get over the ball, every little piece is then aligned and I've predicated exactly what my body needs to do neurologically. And so I have like this space in my brain, in my mind, this black space of, of force input to, my, to the club that I've created over time. And so I can literally close my eyes and swing and hit shots with no problem because that's how I've literally trained. And so, you know, some people like, you know, for example, you know, Tiger maybe does it with his hands, right? He, he controls his flight and trajectory by his, his hands and he's, he feels it with his hands and he has to look at the target and go, oh, that's what creates that shot. Or Jack Nicholas, who can look at a shot and see an envisioned shot and then his body react to that. Well, I'm a guy that builds it in my brain. I store that neurological sensation or feel in my brain, and then I produce the mechanics. Yeah, yeah, you're spot on. In fact, there's a good body of research centered around mirror neurons, and it kind of dovetails nicely into what you just described. The process of visualization is not fully visual. It's imaginative, and it's kinesthetic, and you need to find yeah. your best path to pull out those swings that you've made time and time again. I want to toss back real quick to Corey because he had a question on that. I wanted to unpack a little bit more that decision-making process because I think the thing that, that from an observational perspective, when you guys get it going and going really low and you're making seven to eight birdies yeah. around and you're shooting really deep, it seems like, man, they've, they've got the pedal to the metal full on. So I'm going to toss it to Corey here. Yeah, I mean, I, I, you brought up a little bit as you talked about kind of unpacking lies and I know that how you are unpacking a golf course is providing you an edge. You would agree with that, yes? Yes, it absolutely is. Yeah, so I'm just curious of how maybe that has evolved in the last year, just that decision-making process and, and tactically, you know, how you're how you're you're doubling down or leveraging that tactical intelligence, that golf IQ that you've had and, yeah. and whether or not that's changed in the last little bit, especially as you, as you talk about how you feel like you've you found some stability in your pattern and your technique that maybe allows you to attack a golf course in a different way, especially when you were feeling it in the playoffs. I'm sure that you're looking at it differently than maybe you yeah. have before. And maybe I'm wrong, but I'm just, just curious if that's evolved at all. Yeah, I'd say my knowledge of the golf course and golf conditions, the variables that affect the golf ball, has definitely evolved in a positive way over the last year and a half. And it started the uh, year I won the John Deere in 2017. 20, no, no, 2016. I forget. It's been a while. <laughs> yeah, they but uh, essentially, when I when I found out some things that week, I was like, man, I got to start learning more about the golf course so that I can consistently reproduce these results. Every once in a while, I hit a shot that I thought was perfect, and it'd land 10 yards long. I'm going, what did I miss? 
I had the same ball speed. I had the same everything. You know, we put the flight scope down and be like, okay, this is the same ball speed. What are we missing here? And I'd sit there literally for 15 minutes talking to Tim about what possibly could it be that makes it go that that make makes it go that that far. Why is there this discrepancy in our in our uh, adjustment for numbers? And so from from that issue, from those issues, every single time when I hit a shot, I'm like, man, that's perfect. It's got the perfect ball speed, perfect spin rate, perfect angle of descent, launch angle, and it goes a different distance. We literally will sit back and say, stop. We're not going any farther until we understand this because this is a unique situation. And so we would go through every single variable, whether it was uphill, downhill lie, the uphill, you know, plus, it was, you know, let's say it's plus 10, right? But you got this uphill adjustment of effectively only five yards because you're hitting a wedge because the angle of descent is so high, it doesn't affect how far it plays out. You know, so you got these, these variables that, and I'm giving you a couple of little nuggets there, but those are very, very impactful things. Barometric pressure. I mean, the ball flies differently in every place, you know, and whether you like it or not, it's affecting your proximity to the hole. It just is. And so if we can calibrate that to a higher potential, I'm going to hit it closer to the hole every single time. And if I do that, I'm going to make more putts. If I'm hitting it 20 feet all day long, unless you're Jordan Spieth in 2015, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm not going to be making those putts all day long. I've got to hit it to five feet every once in a while. I've got to hit it to 10 feet every once in a while. How do you then land balance when to take those chances? Or is it, are some days you just totally green lighting almost every flag you see out? So you have to create an internal range that you have of, so like, let's say you're pitching wedge. I have an internal range where I will hit it left of the target about five, six yards, and then right of the target about like five, six yards at my worst, my absolute worst. I don't take a standard deviation. Standard deviation is taking out those, those unique shots that you hit. I'm always taking in the full range of what my potential is that day. So that's the main difference from, I think, what a lot of uh, people potentially teach is that I'm not taking in just a, a standard deviation. I'm taking in a range because that one shot that you did do hit on the range on accident, somehow it happens, you got to be prepared for. And then that obviously changes over time. If you're consistently hitting it well and like, let's say 100 out of 100 shots, you hit 99 of them perfect. Well, I'm going to go for that shot a lot more. I'm not going to aim at six yards right of the flag or, or whatever it is. I'm going to be going for it more consistently. I'm going to be putting that standard deviation just a little closer. Not standard deviation, my range a little closer to the hole. I'm not going to edge it out. Adopting far more the principle of Harvey Penny, take that aim, yeah? Yeah, I, I, there are certain instances where absolutely, but you have to know how you can get it to those points more, the, in, in the most consistent way. You know, so yes, I am firing. I'm a guy that will fire at every flag. On, on to a fault like i'll aim seven eight yards right of a flag and for some odd reason i will literally change the face at impact to go right at the target mm -hmm. just just what i do yeah in learning research you know, it's called perception action coupling we see a target that's where we want our ball to end up and it's hard to commit to right. sustaining that target that's actually off the uh, i guess the, the the flag right and but the nice part is is because i've set my body up in a way to where i have these biomechanical limitations i now know how much to unload that joint or, you know, that's all I'll say <laughs> to get it to go where I need it to go. If I'm under rhythm and I've got this full, you know, let's say, let's say 180 degree spectrum of club face rotation, there's only one point at which it's right. But if I can limit my body to where, okay, now I'm only functioning under, let's say 25 degrees. Now I've got a better potential through time to be able to reproduce a certain 
face to impact number. It's a game of ball control, isn't it? And that gives you the, the supreme yeah. level of ball control. And you, you mentioned, you used a word right there that I don't think is fair to use to you, which is to a fault. I think that what you do really well, which most players that you're competing against do really well, is they understand the skills that they have on a given day. And therefore, if they come out and they're swinging it with their full weapon set, their full toolbox, then it might yep. be a day that they're going to take a, l- a few more chances when they they see a flag that may typically be a, a yellow light, but it turns into a green light given the skill set that they have. So I, I would I would probably right. take that word out of your vocabulary. <laughs> <laughs> and I, yeah, I agree with that. But there's also another interesting thought there is like what makes them have it on that day, you know, have them be on that day. That's another thing that always has intrigued me. Why is it that someone can go shoot? 15, 16, 17 under par over four days or 20 under par, 25 under par, whatever. And then the next week they miss a cut. So let's take a quick break in the action to recognize one of our partners, Under Armour. It's Under Armour's mission to make all athletes better through passion, design, and the relentless pursuit of innovation. And that ethos or mission statement couldn't be more aligned with the Earn Your Edge podcast. We're thankful to be powered by Under Armour. Take us back to the playoffs last year. You are literally hottest man in golf, and you have command of your golf ball. How soon do you know that this is one of those rounds, days, weeks where, hey, man, I'm, I'm firing on all cylinders? It's usually a week. It's not necessarily a, a day, although I have had times where, based on my practice, based on my practice, I have afforded me the opportunity to, to make that switch in a week. I'm like, oh, my gosh, I got it now. I, I got it. It's it's easy. Now, I may not win because of other variables and things that I haven't accounted for or understood. But from a golf perspective, it, it can be, I'd say, a day. But that that's 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 not as usual for me. It's more about like how I've been practicing leading up into the week. And uh, probably that Saturday or Sunday before is when I'm like, all right, this is going to be a good week. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So going back to the FedEx and the playoffs and as, as hot as you were, one of the things that we talk to our players all the time is about is kind of getting into character, kind of finding what is their best performing self. What are the the traits and, and elements of themselves when they're performing at their highest level, both physically and mentally? So not necessarily speaking ball control. That's an obvious piece of performing at your highest level. If you were getting ready for a big event and needing to kind of prep yourself for that kind of state, what would you say that you physically look like? What is the physical manifestation of you at your highest performing self? If I'm a gal in the gallery, if I'm watching, what are those pieces that you can kind of look for? This is okay. Bryson's feeling it today. This is something that you would want to duplicate in the future to kind of recreate that state. Whenever you see me happy, but focused, that's when you should watch out. Okay, nice. <laughs> that's your so, time. So when I'm, when I'm, you know, a little bouncy and, uh, but very like focused when I get over the ball, that's my best physical manifestation. But I'll tell you that comes from soul ball control, soul neurological sensational control. Like I've got uh, an incredible desensitivity to air. So I'm not sensitive to air whatsoever. And if I do, if I have a small minimal amount of air, it is so small that it, it doesn't even matter. Gotcha. Yeah. How about the, the mental manifestation of that so what we can't see because clearly on on the range and on thursday and friday it's it's easy to have that kind of ball control but then there's some other things thrown into the formula uh, into the equation on saturday and sunday where there's this intense level of pressure and and kind of how are you coping for, from that what kind of mental strategies would you lean on in those situations to make sure that you can still maintain that 
this is a very interesting conversation because I've been asked this quite a bit and I'll tell, I'll tell you all the same thing is that no amount of pressure anymore affects me the same way because of what I've built. Mm-hmm. So when you start working at these positions that allow you to repeat face control more often than not, you can be in the most stressful situation and the face consistency is still there. It doesn't matter if you're nervous or not. If you still make a motion and you have those these limitations or what I do is and, and, you know limitations, pressure doesn't matter. My mental game solely stems from the neurological repetition. Yeah, from belief and conviction and your blueprint and and what it is that you do, right? Yeah, and I wouldn't even say it's belief, honestly. It's it's more of just, it's a fact. It's a mechanical fact based on how I'm built. And I guess you could say that is internal belief. But from my perspective, my own own viewpoint is that it's just a scientific fact. Because the sign, you know, everything, there's never really scientific fact. There's always, there's only the scientific method. And the scientific method is always about, can you reproduce the same thing over and over again? I mean, that's what Einstein did with his equations. He was able to reproduce things in, in life over and over again by these equations. So they were scientific. They were proper scientific method. There's nothing's ever science fact, because we don't truly know. If you want to go deep in uh, theory, philosophy, there's never really anything that's true fact. We only have theory that has been hypothesized and proven for a few times that we have you know for our lives a series of validated experiments right yeah exactly and so for me it's more about like the pressure only comes about when i do not have a good neurological understanding of where the club face is when that starts to depreciate then i'm become more subject to timing it at impact how my wrist flexion extension ulnar deviation all these things are occurring through impact when i have all those things under account my brain has as as gone off a checklist and gone, that's in, that's in check, that's in check, that's in check, that's in check, all the way through the golf swing, there's this, there's this neurological wall that you can't punch through to me. It just, it's just, that, that's an immunity. And that level of immunity, yeah. as you described, yeah. is forged in the fire of what you do in practice. And a, and a question we're so often asked by players that have aspirations of becoming you is, what does practice look like for you? I'll tell you this too. Back in the day, it was literally six, seven hours a day, at least practicing the golf swing because I was trying to get the timing down. It took so much practice for me to get this neurological repetition for that motion, for this 180 degree closure rate from one side to the other. It took so much input for me to get that consistency and it would only last for a little bit. Once I hit one bad shot, it was gone. So moving forward from there, it's about how can I practice now with the least amount of hours to give me the most feedback? So I'm, I'm, as I've transitioned, I've now started to practice less and get more information out of that. So it's not necessarily the fact that I'm practicing less. I've just got a, a more rested body and I'm able to hit the shots more consistently because I'm, I'm more well rested. Even in a depleted state now for me, because of how I've built the golf swing, I can still reproduce club face at impact, no matter the situation, no matter the pressure, no matter the physical state, because of these, I'd say, in ranges of motion that I've produced. Yeah, love it. All right, Bryson, we're getting to the the time where I know that you've got things to do and places to be. And we've covered about 
I, I don't know. I think we covered about 25% of about what third. we wanted to cover here. So <laughs> here's the deal. Part, part two is a must because this, this conversation right. is so far up our alley here and, and there's some fascinating things to continue to unpack, man. So yeah, and we can go for just a bit longer too. I mean, I've got just a little bit more time. I got a text message saying they're late, so it's all good. Then yeah, so we've got we've got kind of a a series of kind of quick hitter questions that are, are should be lead to maybe a little bit more uh, fluid Discuss, conversation. Yeah. yeah. So one of the questions that we that we always like to ask is as you've kind of gone down this climb and and, and you've reached this the top rung of that competitive ladder, what's something that you have discovered that you feel like has been very useful, but even the majority of your peers at the top are, are underrating that things that, that they don't see how important they are, but something that you, you would attribute to a lot of your success. So you mean something that attributes to a lot of their success and my success, your success that other people are, are uh, ignorant uh, to, or that, that they're underrating. They don't see how important it is. I would say uh, my passion. They, they don't, I mean, the, the people see it, but they, they don't realize how important it is for me to be able to consistently or work hard and try and get better. That's something that, that you don't really see it out there on tour. You know, everybody's having a good time. We're laughing it up, you know, practicing whatever and playing golf, but people don't really see how, how much passion each player has. It only comes out when we struggle, when we're doing our best. Where did that passion come from? How early in your recollection do you realize that passion was something that you, you, you showed up with? It, it was about when I was 13, 14, when I started practicing really hard in the game of golf and I wanted to swing like Hogan. I wanted my, my conviction was I wanted to be the best ball striker in the world, and that's kind of where it came from. Does that passion show up in other areas of your life? Uh, sometimes. So I get particularly OCD with certain things, only at certain times. Like my room is a mess, and I don't care. I've got no care about it. But uh, when it comes to golf, right, I want every little thing in my body to be perfectly aligned relative to what I'm trying to create. Right. Checks, balances accounted for. I get it. Conversely, the, the other side of that coin is what's an overrated element people spend far too much time on that you recognize that it's just a time waster? Uh, putting, <laughs> actually. What? <laughs> <laughs> I know. Well, We're going to have this conversation. This is going to last about half an hour. It's not necessarily overrated. It's more or less that they're practicing things that aren't helping them get better. Gotcha. So for me, I've brought it down to about five, five things that I need to do well in putting in order for, for me to putt great. What are those five? Um, I'll give you three. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> and I'll tease the other two out of you in private. <laughs> uh, so uh, I might give you four. Uh, so obviously, uh, great face control. You got great speed control. And that's a very dicey problem, by the way. The, the speed control is something that is, I think people need to understand more in order for them to be, at least on the amateur level, they have to understand it at a higher level. And you know, I could go for days on that. They got to be able to read the greens. Very simple. But the better you can see how a putt is breaking across the green, the more adept you are at being able to adapt to slopes and be able to, to execute a putt that's online with proper speed. And then, uh, should I give this one? Of course um, you should. <laughs> Come on, give the people what they want, man. <laughs> so the last one is, is launch angle. The launch angle is the most underrated thing in putting. I've been working with uh, the Quintic system this past year. And that is the number one reason why I've gone from 190th in the world to 50th in putting. And you're traveling with the Quintic? Yeah. It's with you all the time. We're trying to understand every, every, I'll tell you, every turf condition changes the launch angle. Mm. Literally without you knowing it. I'm going to come sit on the, on the putting green and watch you guys next time we're out there. <laughs> what, what you describe right there is absolutely true. And we see it 
day in, day out, the biggest time waster is frankly aiming at the wrong targets in practice. Yep. Not having a well-developed understanding, a well-informed understanding, whether that comes from your own research and curiosity and reflection or whether that's coming from an external source. Maybe that's a player that a person watches on the PGA Tour or maybe that's a coach like Corey and I are that aiming at the right targets is most essential. So a, a great point and one that's quite frankly never been raised, just, hey, I practice a lot, but I really don't do the right things because I don't know what those things to do are. Exactly. And that's that was what I was trying to make is that, yeah, putting is not necessarily overrated, but when you quantify it down to these five things, it becomes very simple and something that you can spend literally 15 minutes to work on and you're done for the day. Right. Yeah. So how are you informing what those things are through reflection? And I guess that's a question that we ask a lot is what does reflection look like for a lot of guys? It might mean, uh, you know, we talked to Kramer Hickok. He's documenting to an insane level of, you know, how many hours of sleep he gets, what he's eating. But then others, it just means, you know, I'm looking at my stats. I'm looking at the analytics pretty closely to discover what those performance gaps are. And then that's that's informing what my training is going to look like. How does uh, kind of reflection take shape for you on a kind of ongoing basis? It's a neurological reflection. So it's what I feel incredibly comfortable with. And then what I see my range is with that neurological repetition. So if I've got a range of, let's say, 15 yards or 20 yards on each side with a driver, I'm going to try and get that down to to 15 yards each side with a driver. Or with putting, if I've got a 40-footer and I've got a deviation on the Quintic that says it's a degree either way, I'm going to try and get that down to 0.8 degrees either way. So I'm, I'm always trying to decrease the range for me. And that, that's what gives me how do I practice? How do I, it's never analytics. It's never like, it's never, um, sorry, statistical analytics. I'm never looking at stats, not stroke standard, nothing. I don't do any of that, which is crazy to think for, you know, people who think you're so analytical. Yeah. Does anyone in your team uh, do that? Uh, I have guys that look at it, but I don't care what they think sometimes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, I, I love them to death. They, they, they do help me out every once in a while, but I'll tell you that I know when I miss a 10 footer that needed to be made. I know when I hit a shot into the rough, it shouldn't have gone in the rough. So my whole goal is, it's so simple. It's hit it in the fairway as far as possible. Get your proximity down, and that's all through face-to-path control uh, and angle of attack control and contact point control. And then putting, having a better read on it. So how do I get that? Well, there's through some, some visual stuff that you can learn or train. Having a better face-to-path control on, put, on putts having the proper launch angle and having proper speed. And that's literally it. Those are all the things I think about in order for me to get better. All those data analytics, all those, those uh, statistical analytics, honestly, to me is kind of like hogwash. You're relating it to people where you're like, okay, yeah, it's a good reference for, for somebody, but it's not what will make you potentially the best. Because for me, how I can be the best, my best self version of myself is if I can, get these ranges tighter and tighter. That's all I can control. Yeah, what you're describing right there is a uh, an ability to peel the onion back beyond what's visible on surface. And we talk about data informing, not driving. Like you say, it's, it's, it's a reference, but what you don't want to fall victim to is the flaw of the average, looking at the average and saying, that's my target. When in reality, what you describe, which is really insightful, is I know when I miss a 10-footer, if it was an important 10-footer, that's a 10-footer I need to make. I didn't need to go to yep. the end of the round and take a look at what my 10-foot average putt percentage or yeah. make probability was. I couldn't agree with you more. So what you just gave us is what is, is some really amazing advice. But on the flip side of that, and maybe the answer is inherent in, in your previous response, 
What's the worst advice that you hear professional players give? The worst advice? Uh, we stumped him. Oh, I, I got I, no, no, not yet. And I, I think that the best, the best one that I've heard, it's true to some regard, but I sometimes think it, it, it uh, undervalues the the amount of determination that a person can have. So everybody's like, I, I, I heard this a lot too when I was struggling. They're like, just have patience, you'll be fine. Patience, you'll, you'll, you'll get it, you'll figure it out. Have patience. And what's funny is the opposite was true for me. The less patience I have, the more I figured it out. Because when people always be patient, it's okay, go relax, go. The best times that I've had of figuring stuff out was when I was sleeping at, in bed. I would wake up in the middle of the night going, oh my gosh, that could make me better. That could make me, yeah. And so always focusing on what can make me better is something that pushed me to another level. Here's the problem of patience. If we can visualize a dog fight, there's 10 dogs in this fight for one piece of meat. It's a dog yeah. that's out there waiting for the scraps that ends up hungry. So I, I echo that sentiment that you just made 1,000%. I, I feel like we've unpacked the book of Bryson DeChambeau, maybe just 10, <laughs> 10 pages in a 1,000-page book and appreciate your time. I think yeah, of you as you. as the most interesting man in golf. And yeah, bo borrowing from those Dos Equis commercials, which of the following three most interesting man quotes would you mirror more, I guess, more accurately? Oh, my gosh. I'd have to look them up. I don't even know what they are. Here, no, uh, I, no, I've got three of them for you. I'll give you options. A, B, or C. Okay. A, his two cents is worth $37 in change. That's a good one. When he has a 50-50 shot, the odds are 80-20 in his favor. His words carry weight that would break a less interesting man's jaw. A, B, or C. I'd say the first one is two cents account for thirty-seven fifty or whatever. I, I, <laughs> I like that one. I think what we have today is far more than $37.50 in value. I think, <laughs> I think we've got a, a good couple grand. I'm sure our listeners will yeah. appreciate it. Hopefully at least a couple grand. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we can't be happier to spend some time with you. Thanks so much. And we look forward Thanks. to the next time. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Thanks very much for listening to this episode. If you want to learn more about Altus Performance, go check out altusperformance.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Team Altus and Instagram at Altus Performance. Also, thanks to Cordy Walker for his wonderful production work on this and coming episodes of Earn Your Edge. <laughs>